is that well, we're, in the, we're currently in this season between 874 and 853 B.C., which puts us roughly at the time 300 years after the Bronze Age. It is uh, roughly during that same time an exceptionally high flood takes over Nile, uh, destroys a, a lot of things and covers the floors of the temple in Luxor. Shalmaneser III succeeds Ashurpanal, the second of king of Assyria. really doesn't mean much except this, that Ashurpanal now, uh, the, the second surrenders himself, if you will, through this, uh, well, he dies, that kind of makes it easy, Shalmaneser. And Shalmaneser is a lot more of a, let's go after it. And what he does, and don't miss this, is that Assyria, for the first time, be- starts to become an entity. You know, there's like certain places, and I'm not picking on places, please get that. But, you know, it's kind of like Luxembourg. Uh, you just don't assume that, like, Luxembourg's going to attack the world. But let's be honest, 15 years ago, you wouldn't have said that on North Korea either until some guy started telling everyone that he learned to drive at four months old and all that other stuff. But anyways, all of that said, Assyria now has become this sort of, it's starting to become a force to be reckoned with. Why is that so important? Because our focus on a, on a guy named King Ahab, Ahav, if you will, and that King Ahav, I would probably nickname him King Ahav the Powder. And we'll see a lot of that in our text. He is by far the spiritual doofus galore. He is indiscriminate hand grabber. In other words, he's just, let's all just make a Coca-Cola commercial. Let's just all join hands and let's just be cool about it. Uh, the idea is simple is that he has, and don't miss this, he has sought through matrimony to create sort of a unification of the countries that surround him. And if you're looking at Israel, again, that's the ten northern tribes. The two southern are considered Judah. Just north of them is Sidon. <coughs> like Tyre and Sidon today, that's also called Sidon. Uh, and that's Lebanon. That is that king, Ethbaal, I remind you, was the high priest who became psychotic, or maybe always was, but now we know. And he murdered the king and took the throne from him. And his little cutie of a daughter, Princess Jezebel, winds up marrying then that king of, of Israel. So let's face it, you're not going to attack a country that has your daughter as queen. Well, in theory, I kind of get the idea that Ahab isn't really that hip on her, but just the same. So you have that. But then below Israel is Judah. And they have been at civil war, kind of that Captain America, you know, Iron Man thing, since, uh, since the death of Solomon. And with that then, this guy, his name is Jehoshaphat, God willing we'll meet him tonight, uh, has, has a son, Jehoram, who marries this king, Ahab's daughter. So what you have is this guy marries the girl up north there, and that's how they're going to be nice. And they have a daughter who marries this guy's son. So now there's a union all the way unilaterally, if that makes any sense. But just to the east is the area of Syria, which today is called Syria. Look at how quick you guys are. So if you were to do it this way, you have Israel, you have Tyre and Sidon, you have Judah, and you have Syria. But just beyond Syria just to make things more confusing, is Assyria. Syria today called Syria. Assyria today called Iraq. Well, and parts of Iran. Why is that important? Because Syria, I'll remind you, attacked Israel. Because they were the one place the guy couldn't find anyone left to marry to keep peace with. At the end of which, God brought great victory, if you remember. As a matter of fact, to the point where he's like, they said that I was God of the hills and not of the valleys. I'll whoop them on all fields so that you know, King Ahab, the mercy of God to reach out to this doofus of a spiritual idiot. 
you've got to know I'm the Lord. And I'm going to give you every reason to worship me, even if you're not going to. Now, with that in mind, at the end of it, and I remind you, this is on our last chapter, going into our text now, that God wipes out a vast majority of that area of Syria. But the king, well, he should have been taken down, but instead, that King Ahav is like, oh, this is my opportunity for creating union again. Unity. Oh, he's my brother. Hey, come on, buddy, let's just join hands. And the king of Syria says, hey, remember all that property my dad took from you? I'm going to give it all back. Don't miss that. Lock that in for a moment. Those of you who are quick enough to be able to retrieve it later in your memory files. Now, with that, and he says, oh, in Damascus, which, by the way, to this day is the capital of Syria. He says, well, you can actually set up a marketplace there. Oh, yeah, that's kind of nice. You know, kind of like Camden Market. You can sell your bracelets. So you have that opportunity. You're, you know. Now, if I can put that into this consideration, so what we have then is we have Israel. We have Sidon. There's still a bit of union again through this situation with Jezebel. The south to their children being married. And you have this guy here who they've whooped and they let him go back. Now, God has a real problem with that. So God's like, no, 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 no. You're going to be responsible for this king you have. Now, traditionally, Syria would attack them again in the spring. It's kind of like, this is just kind of like English rules. Let's fight and we're going to kill each other until like it starts raining. And then... I'll most likely be back in the spring to kill you again. And that's what usually happens. And we know that even from David, if you remember, and that's one of the things that got him in trouble with Bathsheba is that he should have been. It's, it's, it's the spring. It's when the kings go out to battle. But David instead was watching Netflix in his house. So uh, all of that to say, the reason why Syria is not attacking right now is because they're defending Assyria beyond them. So they've been distracted. So that leaves us in a situation now where that's kind of not the point. So Syria, the only real irritant at the moment, to be honest, the real irritant of King Ahab is actually God. But as far as politically, the only real irritant is going to be Syria. They're kind of distracted right now by what's, on, what's east of them. Now, if I've totally lost you with all of that, forgive me. That's okay, because we're going to get into Ahab the powder here in a moment. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. We're in chapter 21. And um, if I run out of the room for a moment, just pray. That probably means I'm done to do something like remove all of the. Yeah, I'm going to clean my head. I'm going to get my head clear. All right. Lord, I want to thank you. You could use the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. You can use the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And it's never about our strength. It's about yours. And so I throw myself at your feet and say, Lord, do amazing things and speak to us in this time. Let your word penetrate our hearts as we fly through this, Lord. Let us get what we're supposed to get. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, when Elijah has to go and approach him about this whole situation, well, we'll see. Elijah, mind you, has been running for his life because little Queenie Jezebel has actually put a hit on Elijah. Chapter 21, verse 1 says, It came to pass after these things, after these great victories, although then he tries to play a political route instead of letting God give the total victory, that Nabot, the Israelite, had a vineyard which was in Jezreel, because he's a Jezreelite, he should be in Jezreel. 
next to the place of Ahav, king of Samaria. So Ahav spoke to Nevot, saying, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it as a vegetable garden, because it's near next to my house. For, for it, I will give you a vineyard better than it, or if it seems good to you, I will give you its worth and money. Now Nevot said to Ahav, The Lord forbid that I should give the inheritance of my fathers to you. So Ahav went to his house sullen and displeased. He's pouting. Because the word in which the Israelite had spoken to him, for he said, I won't give you the inheritance of my fathers. So he lay down in his bed, he turned away his face, and he would eat no food. Not hungry. Now, Jezebel, that sweetheart, his wife came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so sullen that you eat no food? I said to her, Because I spoke to Nebat, the Jezreelite, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it pleases you, I'll give you another vineyard for it. And he answers, I won't give you my vineyard. That's where we start this. Nebat means fruits. Probably doesn't mean much to you. But it does when you live in Yezreel. Yezreel is the one major valley that connects the Sea of Galilee, ultimately, with the Mediterranean Sea. Very important in that sense because it's from that that wind tunnels can be coming from onshore, from the Mediterranean, gather speed, and create quite a quick storm on the Sea of Galilee. That should sound familiar. Well, except that they're heading in the opposite direction when a wind is contrary to them, which takes it to a supernatural storm. Now, in such a case, the Valley of Jezreel has also got another name because down, if you will, if you're looking at it like a clock, roughly at about 9, 10 o'clock on the clock is a place called Megiddo. Megiddo was the place where Solomon had a bunch of stalls for his horses. A place, in essence, was a storehouse for his chariot horses, would be the idea. Now, the term for hill, there's a couple terms for hill in the Hebrew. So here's a little bit of a Hebrew lesson. If it's a fake hill, not, you know, in the sense of you built a city, it got ruined, and you built on top of that, and it got ruined, and it built on top of that, it becomes quite a place. There's a lot of Italy like that, by the way. And uh, they call that a tell. In other words, that's a, a mound, which there's a whole bunch of ruins down there. So if you really were fun and you were adventurous, you could dig down and find all kinds of cool things. Excuse me. On the other side of it, a natural hill is called a har. And I can actually, for whatever reason, hear Lois saying that's kind of an Irish thing. Arr! You know. Har means hill. So how would you say the hill of Megiddo? Har Megiddo. And that's where we get the term Armageddon from. It means the hill of Megiddo. That's a big valley. Again, I remind you, connecting in essence, in a very loose, paraway, loose way, the Mediterranean to the Sea of Galilee. Now, why is that important? Because it's the place where the final battle is going to take place, and it is the most fruitful place in all of Israel. Did you know, until a few years ago, this tiny little place, smaller than Wales, was the second largest exporter of citric fruit in the entire world? Yeah, God made it fruitful just like he promised. Well, Jezreel is a, lot, a big part of that. Now, what we read in this is there's a guy and he's got a vineyard. That's pretty obvious. His name means fruitful. That's a good name to give a guy that's tending to your fruit. While that's the case, the king has a palace and it apparently butts up to the same property. We got that, right? 
Got that for meaningless? Well, there is a small problem. It's not his only palace. King Ahab's primary palace is in Samaria because Samaria is the capital of the Northern Empire. That's 25 miles south of here. So if you will, this is a summer home is the idea. So this isn't his primary property, but he kind of somehow kind of pops up to the property for a moment and he looks and he goes, you know, that would make a lovely vegetable garden. You get the idea. And so he, and he kind of does and he kind of plays. Now, again, he appears to be the diplomat, doesn't he? With all of the places he's played so far. Hey, how about this? If it pleases you, wouldn't it be really cool? Except there's a small problem with that and that is completely against scripture. And that's where Nabot is playing. In Leviticus chapter 25, Verse 23, it tells us that the land that a person owns once allotted to the people should never be sold permanently because God actually owns the land. And if the land is his, recognize that you are a stranger or a sojourner before me. In other words, God says, it's my property. I can give it to who I want. That is really important, let's say, in politically what's happening today in Israel. Because you've got a group of people, let's say they call themselves the Hebrews, which literally means foreigner or one from beyond, and a group of people that call themselves Palestinians, which literally means not from here, arguing over land. Now, that tells me that neither one of them have a proper claim to the land unless they can find out who properly owns it and ask him who or her who would give it. Well, God owns the land is what he says. And he goes, well, I own the land and I've given it to you through the promise I gave to Abraham. That's the idea here. So he looks at this and he goes, this guy, what he's doing is he's going, God told me I couldn't do this. There's this really cool story in Numbers chapter 36. If you're a lady in this room, you kind of want to bank on that chapter for a reason. Because there are people that are like, God is such an anti-feminist and he so hates women. This, in the face of the Middle Eastern culture, even today would be scandalous. But in chapter 36, there's these daughters of a guy named Zalophahad. And the problem is there are no sons. And when the land is being attributed to everyone, they're kind of like, well, what about us? And what, he's like, I mean, if we marry somebody else, it's going to go to their family. Well, what about us? Do we get our dad's inheritance? And what, the, uh, what the, God's judgment was, was you can marry, but you have to marry within your tribe so the property never really leaves your family, is the idea. Because he says in this, let them marry who they think best, but only let them marry within their family or their father's tribe. So that the inheritance of the children of Israel shall not change hands from tribe to tribe. For every one of the children of Israel shall keep the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. That's important. As a matter of fact, it gets to the point where in Ezekiel chapter 46, God says this, A prince shall not take any of the people's inheritance by evicting them from their property. I think he might have been pulling from this story. So understand when God, and here's the simplest truth. How do we apply this? Because chances are it isn't like God's handing you to the deed to Chelsea. Well, whatever God gives you, he gives you for good. And that is important to note. God is not, and I hate to use the term Indian giver because it's, well, first of all, it's completely insensitive. And I am a Native American to some degree. But it's, but it's also just a dumb way of saying something that makes it historically incorrect. The idea is when God gives you something, he gives it to you for good. We read it this way, that the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. Now, here's the thing that we forget that God doesn't. That when he enters into the relationship with you, he already knew everything about you that you don't. He already knew that stupid thing you do, the stupid thing you're about to do or that you will do later in the future that you're going to go, I can't believe, wow, where does God feel about me now? When he entered into the relationship, he already knew those things. You're just going to discover them. And as you do, the easiest thing to think is, well, God, how could you love me? 
But instead, why don't you just relic, relic, why don't you relish in God's grace? Because it's God who says, you know, you realize, wow, you even knew this about me and you still love me. Now, that's not license to sin, but it sure is cause to celebrate and to sink into the security of a God who knew that when he chose you. Well, with that in mind, now, again, back in our story, we have pouting Ahab sitting on his bed facing the wall. And he's just like, I don't want any falafel tonight. Jezebel, verse 7 says, his wife said to him, you now, you, you now exercise authority over Israel. Arise, eat food, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Nabot the Jezreelite. Now, any of you kind of go, uh-oh, when you hear this? It is never a great idea to let your pagan, idol-worshipping, God-hating, Elijah-assassinating wife handle a problem like this, or for that matter, any problem. But it is amazing how many times we'll take somebody that we know hates God. We know has declared war on the ethic and the moral and the standards of God and still go, hey, fix my problem. God's like, you know, that is a bad idea. Let's figure out how she decides to fix the problem. Verse 8. She wrote letters to Ahab's name, in Ahab's name, sealed them with his seal, sent the letters to the elders of the nobles that were dwelling in the city of Nabot. She wrote in the letters saying, Proclaim a fast and seat Nabot with high honor among the people and seat two men scoundrels, literally sons of worthlessness, sons of Belial before him and bear witness against him, saying, You blasphemed against God and the king. Then take him out and stone him that he may die. Well, that's a plan. So he's like, okay, let's throw a party. Let's put him in this whole thing as, hey, you're the kind of guy that we honor. And then have two people that are good at lying and bearing false witness go. You know, notice it doesn't just say you blasphemed against the Lord. But who else are they saying you blasphemed against? The king. Now, is that an Israeli concept? No. Is that a Sidonian concept? Well, yeah, I remind you, her dad was the high priest and also king. It kind of makes sense to her. Blaspheming against the king. Now, <clears throat> side note, but it is an important one for us. Do you know what the Bible says we should be saying about our prime minister, about the queen, and about the president of the United States? It says that we should be saying prayers. Nowhere in Scripture does God give us the luxury or the license to diss people that are actually appointed to government. No. That's hard to hear, isn't it? Because isn't it so easy to diss somebody when everybody else is? Remember when you were in secondary school and everyone made fun of someone and even though you knew it wasn't right, you could kind of, even if you were silent, it's still complicit. And you're kind of like, <laughs> but you knew in the end it wasn't right. Hey, if somebody's a jerk and they're in leadership, they could use prayer, don't you think? If somebody's actually cool and decent and they're in leadership, they could use prayer. Because there's a lot of other people who are jerks in leadership. And God actually tells us there is no authority except that God has put him there. And you go, well, boy, if God only knew who was running the government as we know it right now. And I would say that was written during the time of Nero. In as much as we could try to diss any person, 
Aside from, and again, we should be praying for the guy in North Korea as well. I still think Nero does them all. And God still put him in position. And he was killing Christians. We really do need to be in prayer. See, we actually have the rare opportunity as Christians to do something the rest of the world doesn't get to do. And that is rest on the fact that these people are on profile actually aren't ruling the world. Because you know who rules the world? Girls do. No, that's actually. Uh, had to do that. You know who rules the world? My God rules the world. He owns this place. And if he owns this place, you know, I used to think that that the world leaders were actually representations of the general populace of people. But I'll be honest, I think often they're a representation of the church or the lack of its presence in a community. Selfish, self-aggrandizing, you know, popularity-seeking, whatever the term you want to use. I don't think that there's a term I could find out there that I couldn't apply to the church in one way or another. And I think we need to have a greater influence on the world around us. We need to be back on our, on our knees where we belong. Well, with that in mind, we're back in our situation here. Think about that for just one second. Let that sink in. Okay. I just have this horrible image that one time I'm going to come out here and there's going to be like pieces of like tissue on my. So she's like, okay, here's the idea. She is purposely raising up false witnesses. We're aware of that. It has to be more than one because Deuteronomy makes clear that nobody can be killed at the testimony of one witness. By the matter of two witnesses or more, a matter is established. God promises. But let me tell you a, a, a standard that God set up about this specifically that you might not know. I do think this is fantastic jurisprudence. If you have your Bibles, turn to Deuteronomy 19 for a moment. Deuteronomy 19. If you're new to the Scriptures, it's the fifth book of the Bible, even though it's actually called the second law, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 19. Deuteronomy 19, verse 16. If a false witness... Oh, go ahead and get there. I'll wait. Yeah, I'll wait. Go ahead and get there. Take your time. (laughs) Should have done that first. If a false witness rises against any man to testify against them of wrongdoing, then both of men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges to serve in those days, and the judges shall make careful inquiry. Like that. And indeed, if a witness is, I'm like a screaming goat, if a witness is it's a false witness, see what happens when I'm like this? Okay. If a witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he sought to have done to his brother. So you shall put away the evil from among you. This is going to be an amazing MP3 to listen to. 
And those who remain shall hear and fear. And hereafter, they shall not commit such an evil among you. So here's the idea. Yeah, uh-huh. Pray, pray for me, see? Pray for me. All right. If a guy is coming to nail you falsely, the situation just gets me going. And he is trying to drive you down with a false accusation. And he gets caught for it. Whatever the punishment would have been that would have happened to you if you were guilty, now happens to him. I think that's fantastic. Fantastic response by God. So somebody wants to accuse you of something that would actually have you be killed, then you kill him. You'd say, well, that sounds pretty heartless. You know what it does? Thank you. That's, I, just, I keep doing that until you say bless. It serves as a warning to everyone else. It's a preemptive strike for everyone else who's considering it. Oh, this is a fun one to listen to. The good news is most people aren't driving when they're listening to these MPGs. If these men were to be caught, they would be taken out and stoned. But they wouldn't be the only ones. Jezebel we would take out in stone because she was the one who was, in essence, the protagonist. She was the one who put this thing together. There's always one person like this, you know, in a crowd of friends. There's somebody who comes up with the idea, who seldom gets busted, by the way. Have you noticed that? They're like, I have an idea. Let's all do this. And by that, they mean everyone else should do this. And then they get caught and then till the next idea. Well, that's Jezebel, but she is going to get caught, by the way. She's going to get nailed hard. All of that to say, you get the idea. Now, why is she trying to do this again? Why is she trying to kill Naboth? She wants to, yeah, because her husband's pouting because he didn't get a vineyard. And she's like, I'm a problem solver. I'm a fix-it person. I'll take care of it. So the men of the city, the elders and the nobles, there's always, by the way, jerks for hire. You're probably aware of that. It doesn't take, you don't have to look hard to find somebody who's willing to cause this kind of trouble. Verse 11, so the men of the city, the elders, the nobles who were inhabitants of his city, did as Jezebel had said to them, as it was written in the letters. Now, you realize that's a literal paper trail. Or papyrus trail, or, you know. Anyways, probably membranous, it was on like a membrane. Written on the letters in which she had said to them, they proclaimed a fast. Normally when a fast is proclaimed, it's because something's not right and we need to get right. They seated Nimbona in a high honor among the people. Hey, everybody, cool, thanks. Thanks, guys, I really don't deserve this. And the two men, scoundrels, came and sat before him. And the scoundrels witnessed against him, saying, against Nimbona in the presence of the people, saying, Nimbona's blessing God and the king. So they took him outside of the city and stoned him with stones, which is the best way to stone someone is with stones. Marshmallows and feathers are not as effective. Well, pray for me. So that he died. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. It came to pass, when Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Achav, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive, but dead. In case you weren't figuring that out. 
So it was when Achav heard that Nebot was dead, that Achav got up from his pouting bed, I remind you, where he wasn't eating, and he went down to take possession of the vineyard of Nebot the Jezreel. Now, if you were this guy, gentlemen, and your wife went, don't worry, what did you really want? Oh, you wanted the new iPhone? No problem. I just murdered a guy so you could have his iPhone. Is there any part of you that thinks you should say, honey, I really think that was a bad idea? Bad, bad idea. <clears throat> but he's stuck. Here's the problem, and hear me. The world keeps talking about unity. And there is a unity we're supposed to have with Christians. And there is a solidarity we need to have with Christians. But when it comes to the world, what do we have in common with the world? Sin. That's what we have in common. Let's be honest. We are saved. We have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are new creations. That old person has been laid to rest. Our corpses are done spiritually. Their corpses are walking. We're the living people. They're the zombies. There isn't a lot in common. You say, come on, we both have hands. Yeah, but you want to hit me with yours. And the reason I say that is, it is almost astounding how the church wants to reach out a hand to the world, but not embrace each other. It's like we can go, well, I don't know if I can fellowship with that guy because that guy speaks in tongues. Or I don't want to speak, I don't want to hang out with that guy because that guy doesn't speak in tongues. I don't even know if he's saved. You know, well, I, you know, I really believe that God specifically chooses, and I'm not too sure that guy believes that. We can't hang out. But I can get wasted with this guy over here who's going to hell because after all, at least what? What do you have in common with him? Sin, that's what you have in common. And his Unbelievable to me. It doesn't surprise me that the world says we should do that because for us to be able to embrace them, we have to drop what makes us different. And I've heard this as you know. I've been. I had the beauty of being able to spend some time with one of the wisest men I know, my older brother. It runs in the. Fa- I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but he really is. He's he's infinitely older than I am. In case he's listening to this, and. But he is. He's an amazing pastor and a fantastic brother. And he just, things just fall out of his mouth that are like nuggets that I'm like, oh, I need to like walk on the beach. Well, I need to walk on the beach anyways, but take that thing and I'm going to walk on the beach. And, and one of the things we, we were talking about first generation versus second generation Christians. And, you know, like the first generation are the people, you know, it's kind of like first generation people who've moved to a country. They're people who didn't, weren't raised Christian and then somewhere down the line found Jesus. So let me ask you this. In this room, I know Tay's not going to raise her hand because that would be really weird. Uh, if you weren't raised in this Christian environment where you might have called yourself a Christian regardless, you know, let's say some people, you might have called yourself a Christian when you were three or four or five because your family was kind of involved in that. But you were clearly raised as, an, as not that. And somewhere down the line, you encountered Jesus Christ. And your whole life changed from that point on. And you could say clearly, before that point, I wasn't even remotely Christian. And at this point, clearly, raise your hand right now. Did you do that? It's kind of fun to watch. Okay. Now, the re- I, by the way, I'm raising both because I was really bad at that. Uh, let me lay something out for you. 
And we'll get in, and I have a feeling we're just going to get to this chapter, even though the next chapter is so amazing. It's, it, yeah, it, it's, it's giggle full. And it's just, I'm priming the wheel for next time. There are people who are born obscenely wealthy. And they know how to act wealthy. They learn how to speak without opening their mouth. I've learned that with some. They may never drive because they'll have a driver. They have, their suits are going to be hand-tailored. And again, they're sort of stereotypes. I recognize that's not everyone. But they're, let's just say there's a group of people that's sort of the silver spoon stereotype. They live in very, very large houses. They have all kinds of you know, servants and so forth. And then there's another group of people who weren't raised that way. But somewhere down the line came into a whole lot of money. Let's say they won the lottery. Or for whatever, they started a startup that for whatever reason just exploded and the next thing you know they're sitting on eight digits. And the reason, now, in the end of it all, they may be just as rich as each other, but when you put them next to each other, they don't remotely look very much the same. The second guy, he's probably not going to get a driver. He's just going to get a cooler car. He may, not, he may not buy a whole lot of Armani suits. He might just buy a couple more pairs of jeans that he likes that might actually fit him. But neither is more rich than the other. But it is amazing how hard it is sometimes for those two to get along. The first group, the danger in the first group, is they could actually be absent of all of their money, but as long as they have their suit, you would still think they're rich because they know how to look and talk rich. My wife's that. She was raised in a, in a godly home, just something she was a very religious home, and she's learned the proper protocol. My daughters have learned that. They know what it's like to put on the suit and to speak the sock and so forth, and they know what it's like to, be, to act rich. I'm not that. I wasn't raised that way. And I've learned first generation traditionally wants to change the world. Because they've been changed. They've watched their world changed. They knew how bleak and miserable and empty and vacant and hopeless and dead it was. And so they look at somebody who honestly looks bleak and vacant and empty and hopeless and go, I know your world can change because I was where you are. And we're like, we want to change the world. And again, this isn't universal, but this is very... I've noticed it to be fairly common, but the second generation wasn't raised with that. And I've learned often what they want to change is the church. Because the one thing they haven't experienced in a radical change is what they think the world might have to offer. Now for us, we look at those things and we know the traps because we've been in those traps. We've, had, we've watched God pull those traps off of us so we can actually get to a new life. So they're only stories to the second generation. So the idea of getting wasted, running around having sex if you want to, or whatever. I mean, all of the things that we're ashamed of. Even though we may not have known better, we're still ashamed of it now. If we came from that first generation. They look at it and they go, well, how close can I get to that without it really biting me bad? And, and the reason I say that is that Israel's in this place where they've kind of had this steeping of religion and they have this beautiful history but they're kind of they're nibbling at the world in Israel specifically in the northern kingdom they are so determined to nibble at the world 
and become more like it. And Ahav is classic in that because he's even literally crawled into bed with the world through this high priest's daughter that happens to be his wife. That God says, you are not allowed to do that. And now as a result of that, she's bearing the fruit of a person like that. She's not repented. She's not in any way shown any concern for the living God. Because if the living God was that awesome, Ahav would not have gone near her until she would have repented at all, or he wouldn't have gone near it at all. Because he knows that the most important thing they do not have in common. So Jezebel taking out Naboth for his vineyard is just her being herself. And it is amazing when you hang out with someone you think somehow by osmosis they're just going to become a super Christian when they hated God before you knew them and somehow now they're going to change. And then when they do something like this, we're really shocked, but it's really kind of who they are. Because it's kind of who we were before Jesus slayed that person. Praise God for that. Now, Elijah, mind you, was running for his life, but that doesn't mean, and God's fired him, but that doesn't mean that he's not, doesn't have one last mission here. Verse 17, the word of the Lord came to Eliyahu the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Achav, king of Israel, who lives in Samaria. But there he is in the vineyard of Naboth. Notice God never called it the vineyard of Achav. The same way, by the way, that God actually calls Beersheba Uriah's wife to David, even after Uriah has been murdered. He's gone down to take possession of it. Verse 19, you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord. Have you murdered and also taken possession? Wait a minute. Has Ahav murdered? His wife did. But he has done nothing to rectify the situation. He's actually cashed in on it, if you think about it. And you still speak to him, saying, and you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, And the place where the dogs lick the blood in the boat, dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. Have a nice day. Ahav said to Eliyahu, Notice, this is the great part. Achav, living in rebellion to God, looks and goes to Eliyahu. Have you found me, O my enemy? Wait a minute, who? Enemy? If somebody has declared war on God, and they hate God, and they, are, they think you are the most awesome thing in the world, if, if somebody really hates God and declares war on him, but thinks I'm the most awesome thing in the world, I am not happy with that. There's, I mean, I'm, I'm supposed to be looking like Jesus? I'd be like, well, we should handle it in a way so that we could kind of be really cool. With it, but, but how can I do Jesus better than Jesus does Jesus? And again, I'm not saying just be a giant jerk for Jesus and make people hate you. But if somebody hates God, let's say it this way. If somebody's declared war on my wife and I start hanging out with them, my wife has a right to think something's wrong with my relationship with her. Now, I'll tell you how James says it. One of my favorite people in Scripture, punch you in the face with the truth. He says, adulterers, adulteresses, don't you realize friendship with the world is being an enemy of God? I wonder how James would handle friendship evangelism. Hey, we're supposed to build relationships, but friendship is not the end. We build a relationship so that people can know Jesus. Because there's no way I can look at an unsaved person, say I want to be their friend and not want them to know about Jesus. I don't know how that, in my understanding, I don't understand how that I could be a friend to them. I don't understand how they could reconcile it either. Well, trouble over Israel is the last thing he called them in 1 Kings 18. Now, he is calling Elijah in, is calling him his enemy. 
Elijah's answer, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, we've only got a few verses left, believe it or not. But here's our key point for a moment. Have you haven't just compromised. You haven't just been careless. You put yourself on eBay and you let people bid. Indiscriminate if we would say yes. It goes worse. Do you know the term that God uses in the New Testament? It's the term propitiation. Maybe you're not familiar with the term, but for instance, it says, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son as a propitiation for our sins. So do you know what a propitiation is? The answer probably is something really cool because Jesus did it and I'm the beneficiary of it, so it must be awesome. Elasmus is the word in the Greek. It literally means ransom payment. Let's connect the dots. There's a guy who comes in here and he says, I need to kill someone. But first I'm going to torture them and I want to hurt everybody involved in their life. Do I have any volunteers? No. There's a part of us because of watching enough, you know, Hallmark family specials and all those things, where we might think there's that selfless hero that'll do this for the benefit of everyone else. But what if the guy doesn't say, you know, it isn't like he's like, look at one person, one way or another, one person I'm going to take, whether you like it or not, but he's like, look at, I don't have to take anyone, but I will torture someone and I will abuse them and I will use them to abuse everybody else that they love and I'm looking for volunteers. Now I can leave with no one, but if you want to be that, you just tell me. And Hugo stands up. Sure, use me. Please, that'll be cool. So he goes. And the next thing you know, Hugo's hurting himself. He's destroying himself. He starts destroying Deborah. He starts destroying all of his close friends, me included. And, and, and it's like in everybody's life, his family is weeping. Deborah's weeping. We're all weeping because we're seeing what he's doing to himself and to everybody else. And the hardest part about it is that he volunteered. That's what Elijah is saying to Ahav. Elijah is saying, you willingly gave yourself over. That's the idea. The word, by the way, is the word machar. And machar literally means to sell your daughter into slavery unnecessarily. The idea of it is, it isn't like you're going to totally die. It's still not the right idea. But it's kind of like you have stuff, but you may have the, I, you know, the iPhone 10 or 11 or 25, but you don't have the X25 or whatever. And so what you're going to do is, you're going to just, well, if I get, I've got enough kids. Let's dish one of those. Anyways, which one's the messiest? And you know, and off you go. And then it's like, well, now i got, that's the idea here. It's something that's so unnecessary, completely at the hurt of another person. And that's what he's saying. But the thing is, Elisha's saying that to Ahav, about Ahav. He's going, you handed yourself over to slavery. You sold yourself over to sin. For what? What did you get out of this that was so worth it? That's the idea here. As a matter of fact, 
It'll tell us this in chapter 21, verse 25. There was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up to it. In other words, his, the counsel of his loving cookie wife said, hey, why don't you go ahead and be a slave? Nobody needs a friend like this. God will actually say it about the whole nation in 2 Kings chapter 17 when God says in verse 17 of that same chapter, they caused their sons and daughters to pass through the fire, practiced witchcraft and soothsaying and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Literally, in God's face, in front of God's face to provoke him to anger. But let me tell you what Paul says about us and himself. In Romans chapter 7, Paul says, in verse 14, I know that the law is spiritual, but I'm carnal, sold under sin. Like it or not, we've all done this. We have volunteered into a hostage situation without any genuine pay. Not that any of it would have been worth it. And that's why Jesus has to come as propitiation. Because the ransomer is demanded life for life. So here you are, you volunteered. Which, by the way, I vol- let me use it this way so it's a little easier on you. I volunteered, and because I volunteered, I deserve to be tortured and slain. And you could actually say he deserves it, and I'll be honest, I do. There's no doubt, I do deserve that. I volunteered. And he goes, well, who wants to redeem? Who wants to step in this guy's place? You know what the problem is? You know who can't step in my stead? Another hostage. Because what's he going to get for that? So you can't step in my stead because you sold yourself to sin too. So the only person who could trade has to not be... A hostage. And there's only one person that qualifies. And it's not Muhammad. And it's not Buddha. And it's not Paramahansa or Yogananda or Hare Krishna or whatever the next the flavor of the day is. And it's God himself who clothed himself in flesh, who was tempted in every way yet without sin. So that he qualified because he wasn't a slave to sin. Because Jesus says whoever sins is a slave to him. Do you know even the Quran says that Muhammad sinned, but he says that Jesus was sinless? thought you might find that interesting. And I'm not calling that scripture anyways. And it isn't just that he's the only one that qualified. He had to volunteer. And he volunteered to take your crimes and my crimes upon his shoulders. And you know what the term is we use for that? Redemption. Because Jesus is our propitiation, Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law which literally means to buy you back. When you redeem something, you're handing it back for money. Do you realize in this Christmas season how important it is to realize that God came, He could choose His body and He chose a baby because we were babies? The God who created all the universe was helpless and needed to be fed by a woman though he created the woman who would feed him. Though he created all the stone and wood on the earth, 
There was still not a place built by man that he actually could be, that he could enter into the world through or by or in. But he'd be out in the stars. Because you were a hostage and I was a hostage and he came to buy us back. But Elijah's looking at Achav and he's going, you sold yourself over. So you need to hear what God has to say. Behold, I'll bring calamity on you. I'll take away your posterity. You know what that means, right? <coughs> it means you ain't going to be rich anymore. And I will cut off from Achav every male of Israel, both bond and free. I'll make your house like the house of Yeroboam, the son of Nabat. And like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahia, two of the previous kings, while Yeroboam was the first of the Israel, Asha would follow. Both of them, their entire lineages don't exist anymore. In other words, it wasn't like they just died. The very, well, if I will, the profligate fruit of them is also destroyed. Because of the provocation in which you have provoked me to anger and made Israel sin. Concerning Jezebel, the Lord also spoke, saying, The dogs will eat Jezebel by the well of Jezreel. By the way, why the wall of Jezreel? Because that's where she did that's because that's where she did her deed. In other words, though she wasn't there making sure this guy got nailed, she's still gonna be held accountable for it. The dog shall eat what belongs to Chav and dies in the city, the birds of the air shall eat whatever dies in the field. Buffets for both. Now, there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up, by the way. Did you notice in this, God held the man accountable still? She's like, yeah, he could not say, well, she made me do it. Because you know the first guy to actually try that one on God was Adam, and it didn't work for him. It was a very turning point in my own marriage in my first two years because when God does that, well, when Adam does that to God, he says, it was the woman you gave me, man. Of all the things you could have created, you gave me this one. You might want to take a little of that responsibility yourself here. And and I realized that when I was trying to deal with the, the goofy parts of the marriage that I was contributing in those first couple of years, God's like, when you're blaming your wife, you do realize you're blaming me because I gave her to you. Oh, that hurt. You know, it's like there are times where when you're fighting, someone just connects. And I'm not encouraging you to fight, you know, when we fight competitively. And sometimes they get you in these holds. And the hold usually means something's really, really hurts, or if they do it long enough, you're just going to pass out anyways. That verse was that. I was like, there's no way I'm going to make it through this one without being changed. He behaved very abominably in following idols, according to all the Amorites had done, whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. In other words, God's like, I kicked these people out because they did that. Now you're doing the same thing. Hear that, church. I am, this world is not, it's scheduled for a serious cleaning, and these people are going to be removed. Don't act like them. So, it was when Achav heard these words that he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his body and he fasted and laid in sackcloth and went about mourning. This is the opposite of pouting, is mourning. The difference is pouting is because you're sad for you. Mourning is you're sad for God. And he realizes what he's done now. Which tells me that even a horribly wicked, nasty, doofus spiritual like this guy can still have moments 
Do you remember when this girl was thrown at Jesus' feet in John 8? And they tried to nail her on the, being caught in adultery, although the law requires that if she's caught in the act, the guy has to be brought in too. Because after all, it does take two for that. And Jesus says, Let he who has no sin cast the first stone. And these very people drop their rocks and walk away. And these are people who Jesus would call sons of hell leader? As a matter of fact, in the next chapter, they'll pick up those rocks to throw at Jesus. But that doesn't mean that a person for a moment that's going to hell doesn't have a moment of conscience. Clearly, like here. Now the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, See how Achab has humbled himself before me? Because he's humbled himself before me, I will not bring the calamity in his days. But in the days of his son, I will bring the calamity on his house. Okay, last thing, and we're, we're bringing this to close. Obviously, we're all going, going to this chapter. Oh, you got to come for the next one. It's so fun. Uh, the book of Second Corinthians tells us about two kinds of sorrow. A worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow. He says a worldly sorrow leads to death. A godly sorrow leads to repentance and ultimately to eternal life. Just because you're sorry isn't enough. There's two kinds of sorrow. So you've done something and you've hurt someone. You know, it's like Jaden decides for whatever reason he's going to go out and for one brief moment he has a moment of insanity and decides he's going to do 25 Jaeger bombs and then actually take one of those rickshaws, steal it from that Ray guy guy that's usually right at Leicester Square and drive it like a maniac down Charing Cross Road. While he does so, he plows over 15 different women, all pensioners, and they are now dismembered in front of them. By the time he's done, he is sorry. Duh, he's sorry. He's probably going to do time. There's a whole lot of people that are probably younger relatives of those people who probably now want to put a hit on him. You know, and he's got a terrible headache anyways from what he did in the first place. And he's got all of these problems going on. And he's like, I'm sorry. And we all kind of go, duh, of course you're sorry. The question is, if it's a worldly sorrow, that sorrow revolves around you. And you watch this with people who are addicts. It happens all the time. You're sorry about the consequences, but not the sin. But when you watch that, the danger of that is, is that if all you're really bummed by is the consequences, once they lessen, you'll go back into the sin in a heartbeat. When you watch people, they've committed adultery on their spouse, and of course their family freaks out as you would expect, but somewhere down the line, God grants forgiveness, and there's this supernatural reconciliation. But now because the situation has lessened, and they're not grieving over the sin, but actually over the consequences. Now the consequences of lesson, they're tempted to go back into their sin. But what if we grieved over our sin? Because the one consequence is it hurts our walk with God. The rest of the consequences should be insignificant in comparison. Well, in this case, he pouted in the first case because the consequences were terrible because he couldn't have a vineyard. His wife got the vineyard for him, and notice now everything was dandy until Elijah came up to him and said, hey, you killed someone for this? And he, he could have said it was my wife, but he's like, no, you, you know, you, were, you did nothing to change that. You could have said, I'm not taking that vineyard. That's, you killed someone for that vineyard. I'm not taking it. Oh, no, he was glad to take the vineyard because he's got some veggies to plant. And he goes, you know what? He humbles himself. And think of the mercy and patience of God on this guy. I mean, by this point, if you were God, would you have not actually just started 
tearing off body parts just to sort of warn everybody else? This is what I do to people who do this to me? Let's face it, if you were God, you would have done that to ex-boyfriends or girlfriends. Let's just be honest. I'm so thankful you're not God, you should be thankful I'm not. But God was merciful, and for this moment, for a brief moment, he actually mourns. So God says, you know what? It doesn't take away this. But he's like, well, I'm going to... It doesn't sound weird. He's like, so I'm going to punish your kid. See, what we don't know, I remind you, when God had got into a relationship with you, he knew everything you would do. God knows that his son is basically going to be Jerk Jr. So there's no problem handing it down because he was going to earn it anyways. The only difference is for the moment, Achav is, is evaded in. That doesn't mean he doesn't have it out on him. But this is the one brief moment. It'd be like someone being dead for 50 years, but there's a heartbeat for a minute. Do you know anyone like that? Spiritually? You seem like they're just, and you're like, well, they're so close. Are they really? Because this guy has been a renegade from God pretty much his whole life, and he's this one brief moment. But it doesn't mean it's going to end well for him either. So look at this. We go to prayer. <clears throat> and we've gone long, but uh, I'm happy for the moment not to run out of the room. Where are you at as we get ready for Christmas? Are you playing the role of a chav? You're just basically trying to make sure everybody likes you. And because of that, you're willing to compromise and sell yourself over in ways you would never do otherwise. Just so that you could have peace with people. Wait, to be honest, you kind of know in the end you really shouldn't be befriending. It is going to come back to bite you. I want to warn you. And it is amazing how one bad friend can drag you into unbelievable amounts of trouble. Am, am I talking truth here? My girls have known, my daughters have known since the beginning. Everyone you meet is an acquaintance. But they graduate to friends. Because a friend has the honor of influence. You may not be able to choose all your acquaintances, but you can choose your friends. Choose people that you want to be more like. Because if they're your friends, you will become more like them. And this is something you can't afford to be haphazard with and careless. Some of you, I recognize, Christmas means you're going to battle. Family members are coming, some of them that may have hurt you in really bad ways. Some, they just really irritate you in unbelievable ways. Some, they chafe you. Some, you're like, oh, you know, we've always been really close, but let's be honest, every time I'm with that person, I'm an inch away from a jail term. If nothing else, if I spend more than two hours with this person, some regret will be the fruit of it. Don't you realize now is the time to make up your mind about how you want to address those things? Because if you just sort of slip into them then, you'll slip into old habits, won't you? But what if this Christmas something different happened? This Christmas you came in bright for Christ and unyielding to sin. And you went, well, if the only thing we have in common is sin, I'd rather build a bridge and invite you over to Jesus 
so we could have something better in common. If the only thing you had in common with someone was breaking the law, probably shouldn't hang out with them. What do you think? Isn't that what we're doing in essence? What if this was the Christmas that people you love gave their life to Christ and you were part of that testimony because you actually decided you were going to be different? You were going to side with Christ. Because I would love this to be the Christmas that the people we claim to love that don't know Jesus get the greatest gift or at least are offered it. Because he didn't just die for you. I want to remind you, they are still hostages. And strangely enough, you're the hostage negotiator. The captor has set his terms. The only thing left is for the captive to accept them. But the fact that Jesus has offered is insane to think someone could say no to that. But you know people do. And you're like, well, what if they say no? Well, they're already unsaved. You didn't lose anything, did you? They can't get any more unsaved than they already are. So if you share with them and they say no, what did you lose? But what if they say yes? What if they actually say, okay, yeah, I'll say yes, but I've asked them several times before. Well, good. Well, then you know then when they won't say yes, but you don't know if they'll say yes this time. Give them a chance. And watch what the Lord does. You pray with me. Lord, I want to thank you so much for this beautiful text. I mean, it's a weird text to look at. We're right before Christmas, and basically it's like, Merry Christmas, I just killed someone to give them your field. And yet, in that, Lord, we recognize that there was a guy who coveted. He was king, and he had all this stuff, and he was building. We're going to read that he has a house of a palace of ivory. I mean, how does a guy get that much ivory? It's a lot of elephants. And yet the one thing he doesn't have is a guy's vineyard that biblically he shouldn't have a right to. And he gets obsessed with the one thing he doesn't have. Boy, isn't that a lesson for us for Christmas. There is nothing any human being could give us. And we intrinsically know it. There's nothing any human being can give us that is a better gift than you have. And there are people out there that the best gift they're going to get is from what a person can give unless we offer the greatest gift there is. Without guilting us into some weird place where we feel somehow sort of obligated, show us that we get to do this. We get to do this. And I just pray this would be the Christmas where we say no to the bad influences and to the people we should not be linking with, hooking up with, so that we could be more available to be the witness we're supposed to be, to bring people to you. So Lord, I pray for the salvation of the people you put on our hearts and minds right now as we think of those who may be unsaved around us. Lord, for the images you're putting in our heads right now, for the people's names you're putting in our hearts, God, save them. Save moms and dads and brothers and sisters and exes and cousins and neighbors and people that we never ever thought could say yes to you. Save the person who has hurt us. Save the person we've hurt.
thank You so much for setting us free. We do not deserve it. It's grace. Thank You so much, God. Now that we've been set free, put upon our hearts the boldness to offer that ransom to others. And we just want to say thank you for the greatest gift. May we shine because of so, as we should. Thank you for Jesus. And thank you for wanting us enough to send him. So here we are. The one thing you've wanted for Christmas is us. <coughs> so in a fresh and a new, here we are. Have us. Unwrap parts that really aren't the gift. Let them be trashed. And enjoy us for eternity. Thank you that on your Christmas list, we're the one thing you wanted. So as we give ourselves to you, use us now to bring others to you as well. In Jesus' name. Amen.